Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It is good to be with you. I just want to observe a moment of silence for the 49ers and the Bengals. No, I'm kidding. There is indeed a pig roast next week. In fact, Dan the Man, who I hope is watching this, is my partner in crime because there's no way that I could lift this pig without Dan the Man helping me. And so uh, part of the deliciousness is going to be uh, done in community. So even if you don't like pigs or you don't like meat, just come for the commercials. There's beans, there's rice, there's other stuff. Trust me, it's not all about the pig roast. It's not even all about the game. I don't even know that I'll be watching this game because my heart is still tender, wounded from last week's game. Something that Brian Eiler reminded me of so graciously this morning. Part of the joy of coming to church is receiving criticism from another brother in Christ just to strengthen me and encourage me. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Anyway, no, no, no. Next week will be a fantastic time, but Dan the man is helping me with, uh, with the pig roast. We'll come fully adorned. It's a fantastic time. I hope you can come. And I encourage you to invite other people to this. This is a great time to invite other people. In fact, the whole purpose of the pig roast's origination was to gather people. Because there's something about roasting a whole animal that draws people's curiosity. Because unless you live in a culture where they do this with regularity, you may go your whole life and never get to see this happen in person. And I'll tell you, kids, young and old, people gather around. It's quite a spectacle to invite people to. And you say, hey, come to a Super Bowl party at my church. And they go, ah, I don't really know about that. I'm not religious. He said, well, we're roasting a pig in the parking lot. And they go, really? When is that happening? And they make a note, and surprisingly, people show up. So it's a nice, easy invite, just encouraging you to take full advantage of that. So we're in our Vision and Value series. We're jumping back in after last week's sort of celebration, inauguration of new leaders, some reflection time on the really amazing things that God did in 2022, and and really during the pandemic in general, and then forecasting some a picture of what we hope and pray God will be doing here in 2023 and beyond. And today, uh, I've got the privilege of sort of trying to speak into this portion of our vision that is near and dear to my heart. And it states this way, it's inauthentic community. And it's in a part of the bulletin that you maybe don't read, right? It's on the back of your bulletin. If you grab one of these... It's right there. It's the third one listed. And then the other part of your program that you don't read are these little bubbles with our values. And we'll be touching on those as well. And this series is really designed as sort of this helpful, healthy reminder of who it is that we are, who it is that we long to be. And I think if you look at that list, they wouldn't necessarily be specific to Life Covenant Church. I think we've got them down to the core of what Christian life is called to look like. And so we can apply these same values and some of these pieces of our vision beyond the walls of the church and into our regular lives, whether we are necessarily embodying Life Covenant Church in that moment 
or not. Are you with me? So these are just general reminders for us as we think about what it means to live as followers of Jesus in this kind of emerging, crawling out of the darkness and the shadows of a pandemic kind of life that we can be energized and motivated and encouraged to live in a particular way. So this is how we articulate this. In authentic community, we envision a loving, authentic community of people who want to come closer to God. They do life deeply together. They have been immersed in the reality of the Trinity and are part of the great family of saints that transcends the bounds of race, gender, age, social status, culture, and time. They journey together, encouraging, challenging, caring, and pushing one another. And they are deeply aware that they have received compassion from God and they give it generously to everyone they encounter. And there's a nature of vision. It has to be big and bodacious, right? So if that sounds like a lot, like, wow, I don't know about that. That sounds like a tall order. It's okay. It's supposed to be that way because that's what vision is, a picture of a preferred future. And we're working toward it, however large or however small, right? If we have a picture of climbing, you know, a mountain or eating an elephant, you just do it like one step or one piece at a time, right? Connectional is the the value that sort of summarizes or undergirds this statement. It says, authentic, loving community is the context for mission. That's such an important statement, and we'll unpack this, what this might mean. It's simpler and more profound than than, uh, it looks. Authentic, loving community is the context for mission. I love that statement. So I asked a simple question. What makes a community authentic? Right? This is like a $10 word. Right? If you're a Gen Xer, this is, like, uh, this is the $10 word that, that we invented. We brought this word into the vernacular. Right? Authentic, you know, according to the dictionary, it means real or genuine. Right? Take a message. I'll be right back with them. <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. It means real or a, a genuine versus fake or counterfeit. Right? Something that's authentic. It's the real McCoy. Real versus imaginary. Real, meaning rooted in reality, versus something that's a dream or fantasy. Might be another way of looking at that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, this is a great quote. Life Together, the classic aspiration of Christian community. He writes this. Those who love their dream, the opposite of authenticity, who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself, become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. It's a powerful statement. And in summary, if we come into community with a dream of community, or more often than not, the dream of replicating or reinventing a community of the past, trying to overlay that onto the community of the present, we can actually do a disservice, do some harm to the community of the present or the community of reality. Are you with me? Because our dreams set expectations that reality cannot always fulfill. 
It's like our bodies doing something that we imagine that they can do. But in our agedness, and our frailty, we fail and we actually hurt ourselves, right? Because the older we get, the better we were. And so we need to think, yeah, let that one sink in a little bit. It takes a second. Right? So on and on and on. The dream of reality. So we want to live in authenticity. What is real, what is genuine, what is truthful, what is actual. Right? And that's actually far more difficult in many ways. Far more challenging, as we'll see in our passage today. Right? So let's pray. And we'll jump into God's word. Heavenly Father God, Lord, we want to be people who live into vision, but who also pray and work our way through reality, through what is authentic, through what is real. And what is real is not perfect, God. What is real is not easy. What is authentic requires more of us than we are often willing or able to contribute or offer at any given time. And so, God, we just turn to you this morning asking for your help, asking for your wisdom, asking for your power to come and shape in us not a dream of community, but a reality of community that is not easy, but that is beautiful and is necessary. It's powerful. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And this is like the most familiar passage, right? I scour the scriptures thinking community, community, community. And I think this is where I come back to every single time. And it's like an anchor for me. The same language, the same picture, but the danger of looking at a passage that you've seen hundreds, even thousands of times, is that you can gloss over things thinking that you've got nothing more to learn from the Word of God, and that's just not true. You go back again, and you discover something that you've never seen. You can look at the scriptures again and again and again because it's a living document and you are a living, changing, evolving human being. You look into that word with new lenses, new eyes and new experiences and you discover something that you've never seen before. And you wonder to yourself, how could I have never seen that before? How is that possible? And the reality is the word is living and you are alive. So let's not make the mistake of glossing over something just because we've read it a bunch of times before. So Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, holding in our minds this question, what makes a community authentic? What makes it authentic, real and genuine versus a dream? Fellowship of the Believers, 42 says this, they devoted, this is the early church. I won't even call them a church. We don't know what they were. They were a gathering of, of crazy people following, trying to follow Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily 
those who were being saved. So this is a loaded passage, right? These five verses give us at least eight to ten examples of what it meant to live together and do life together in a powerful way. But I just want to look at one summary statement. One summary statement that really stood out to me. And to just sort of live deeply uh, in those words and see how they inform the rest of this as we think about authenticity. And it's right here in verse 44. They were together. They were together. They were together. And it's these three words. We could pass right over this. They were together and they had everything in common. We could just read that and go, yeah, okay, that sounds about right. That sounds like a nice, pleasant picture of church. And I'll tell you what, these three words unpack a powerful reality that was taking place in the life of this early gathering, right? I don't even know if we can call it a gathering because it was a throng, it was a, just a mess of people all smashed together as we discover. And it's so powerful. Where did they meet? Everywhere. Temples, homes, probably gathering in the streets, in the courtyards. When? Constantly. Every day, continuously, they would meet together Right? They couldn't get enough of each other and they continued to even meet in their homes. They would leave from the places of gathering that they were in and they would go to their places and say, let's keep hanging out and they would stay up late. They were party animals, these early Christians. And it says in verse 46 that they worshipped in the temple courts and they went home and they broke bread together because right? they were hungry after worshipping their guts out. They were like, man, I'm starving. Let's go hang out and grab some food. Regular life might have been viewed as an interruption to this constant sort of activity of of participation and togetherness, right? So when it says that they were together, it doesn't mean that they just hung out. It doesn't mean that they just, you know, uh, enjoyed some time together. It literally means they were together. They were becoming a kind of togetherness that was so radical, so real, so genuine that other people were beginning to participate. Strangers, every single day, were being added to this community, right? Every single day. In authentic community, we think about doing life together deeply, immersed in the reality of the Trinity, part of a great family of saints, right? I'm reminded of a time... And some of you will remember this because some of you uh, were there when we were when I was in college, uh, and this was such a unique time. And this is actually a, a much broader conversation when we think about the struggle of uh, Christian faith growing and exploding during a college experience, and then tapering and struggling into young adulthood. Part of the reason is college can be an incredibly formative time spiritually, depending on how you connect yourself into community. And I was part of this really radical, and I didn't know it at the time, uh, because I got saved in Korea in high school, and Koreans are pretty crazy about church, right? When they go for it, they go for it. And so I got to college, and I joined this crazy group of college Christians, and they were nutty too, and I thought, well, these are my people. I'll just hang out with them. But looking back on it now, I thought, no wonder we grew and formed connections that remain to this day. 
because we prayed every day. There was a prayer meeting somewhere on campus in somebody's apartment, usually at 7 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock at night, every day of the week, sometimes twice. And I would try to attend several of these throughout the day. And there would be Bible studies every day of the week. There was a Friday night meeting. There was a Sunday morning worship service. We played sports together. We were just talking about that the other night. Who was on these teams? I don't know. I don't remember. It was a million years ago. We played volleyball, co-ed volleyball, softball, football. We were enjoying each other's lives every single day, praying and worshiping and interceding on behalf of one another, eating, breaking. We weren't breaking bread together. We were eating noodles. That's what we were doing. Giant pots of noodles because they were cheap. And that's what we would do. And life exploded. And class was an interruption to the Christian life. At least it was for me. Right? School was seen as sort of this thing that we did on the way to church. And on the way to prayer meeting. And you can sort of extrapolate that. You can think to yourself, why do we have a Christian high? Some of you are familiar with this. Or a mountaintop experience when you go up to a retreat. And we think, why, why is it that when I go up to Big Bear or I go up to Lake Hume or I go to these other places and I, I, I find myself experiencing sort of this fantastic connection with God and with people so transformative and then when I return home, back to my regular life, back to my school, to my work and to my regular community, I find that that's somehow a letdown, right? And the answer is not that complicated in my opinion. It's not that God exists on the mountain, It's not that God's special presence resides in some camp facility. It's that when you go to camp, you surrender all of the other earthly distractions that might keep you from waking up early, praying every day, reading the scriptures, gathering together in worship, gathering together for meals, gathering together in your cabins, playing games, sitting by the campfire. They were doing the work of Acts chapter 2. Are you with me? And so, of course, God's going to show up and do incredible things because we were living into the basic activities of the life of the early church, undistracted, unfettered by the normal things of life. And when you pour yourself into those things and trust that spiritual process, a dynamic community emerges. Relationships that last a lifetime are formed. There is a durability to this that cannot be found in any other way, friends. You see, you can have a fantastic experience that might impact your life for a moment, but if you do not maintain that process, it doesn't matter how profound the individual experience is, it will not grow it will not mature, and it will not endure. This is why community, real community, is so necessary for the Christian life. So we ask four questions that emerge out of this for me. 
four simple questions as we unpack the phrase, they were together. The first one is who? Who are we talking about? What a critical question when we say they. Who are we talking about? Acts chapter 2, verse 5 and verses 9 to 7 give us a picture of who these crazy kids were, right? Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Okay, so we've got some Jewish Christians who are hanging out in Jerusalem. And then verses 9 to 11 give us this crazy mix. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. It's pretty crazy. It's like everybody's there except the white folk. Right? Just painting that picture. Right? The Eastern Europeans didn't make it to this trip. Again, this is not based on culture. This is not based on temperament. This isn't based on common interests, right? This is as diverse a group as you can pull together at any time in history, right? As we look at this picture, it's, it's just a sample of like, hey, just imagine everybody. Everybody different being smashed together, right? And the only thing they've got in common is that they have a rudimentary understanding of Jesus. A rudimentary understanding of Jesus, right? Smashed together, way beyond their tribalism, way beyond their cultural narratives. Isn't this a relevant subject as we think about today? As we think about this morning? as we think about the categories of people that we view and experience in our daily lives. We live in an isolated, separated kind of culture. Tribalism, friends, is alive and well. It just has new boundaries and new names and new labels. And if we begin to see the world through this lens of tribalism, right? I pick up the sword... Because that's what my forefathers did. Or I hold enmity in my heart because we're Hatfields and McCoys. Right? This kind of lens helps us understand what we see in the world around us. Right? What do you think the challenges of a community like that might be like? What might be the things that they would have to overcome? in order to learn to be together, right? Any thoughts? Fire them out. What do you think might be a barrier to connection and to community if you look at the laundry list of people, right? Language, right? Food, what are we going to eat, right? Bread versus noodles. What's that? Pig. Pig? What are we going to eat? Pig? Oh, yeah, sure, right? Yeah, yeah, but not the Jews. Not the Jews and the converts to Judaism, man. They're not eating pork feet, right? That's not going to happen. We've got to figure out what we're going to eat. We've got to figure out how we're going to eat it, right? I've been hanging out with some Hasidic Jews the last few years, and let me tell you, they're very serious about what they eat and what they don't eat, right? And so you realize we've got all of these barriers, There might be some history there. My people don't like your people. I've got some prejudices we've got to work through, right? 
When my wife and I got married, my wife's Chinese, I'm Korean, and people think, oh, you're both Asian, that's close enough. <laughs> nope. Right? Talk about prejudice. Right? Koreans versus the Chinese, Chinese versus the Koreans, there's all kinds of weirdness there, man. All kinds of challenges bound up inside of that, language being one of them. Food being another. How food is eaten. Simple example. Koreans, we're slurpers. Right? Our food is hot. And I'm not talking just spicy. It's temperature hot. It comes to your table. It's still boiling. Right? If you've ever gone to hot pot. And you can't eat boiling hot things without slurping. Right? But the Chinese, not so much. They don't slurp. They don't slurp. And so when I was at their house one day, we were having lunch and we got served noodles, praise the Lord. We're having noodles at the table, these little Chinese little bowls, and you pick them up, and Koreans don't pick up their bowls because, again, boiling hot, right? Chinese people, you got to pick up the bowl. And you pick up your noodles. And for me, I'm like, I'm going to slurp these noodles till they're gone. And I slurp the noodles, and Angelina is stabbing me under the table with her chopsticks going, what are you doing? You're a barbarian. Scythian, slave or free. It's you, man. You're a barbarian. And her table's made of glass. It's clear, so everybody at the table can see that she's stabbing me under the table with her chopsticks. Thank God they were Chinese chopsticks, much thicker, broader, made of wood, typically. Korean chopsticks, steel, very pointy. <laughs> Huge differences, even in neighboring cultures or culturally connected uh, history, right? Major differences, and this is just the tip of the iceberg as far as this community is coming together with this rudimentary understanding of Jesus. So the question of who is crucial to us, isn't it? We each have our stories of how we've had to overcome differences of understanding, different perspectives, even of the same historical story. Different pictures of what it means to be American or be an immigrant. Right? In what generation we arrived here to this great country. The second part is, what do they do when they come together? What do they do, right? They broke bread in their homes together and they worshiped together. We don't know how. They just figured it out, right? Some kind of common language, common narrative. They were worshiping in their own languages, in their own tongues, and just trying to figure it out and learning to say the name of Jesus and bear the name Christian together and finding some commonality. And we have some picture of this. If you've ever been on overseas missions and you're having conversations, it's amazing what can connect the Spirit of God with two people who don't speak one another's language or are part of each other's culture in the most simplistic ways and you begin to arrive at the same understanding or you can sing the same song but it's in a different language and there's a connection there because we know we're singing in the same spirit, the same words, the same attitudes even though the language is so terribly different at times. Four things. Some people call these the activities of the church that they did when they came together. And they're right here in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. So we might describe that as the study of the New Testament, what we now have 
as the New Testament. What, what they had was just sort of this hodgepodge of understanding that was coming together, interpretations of the life of Christ that were sort of swirling around within this early form of Christendom. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, this togetherness. They loved one another. They worked on community. They spent time figuring out how to be together, how to speak each other's language, how to find common ground, how to have forgiveness and reconciliation, how to move forward in shared understanding. That's what we're talking about in this picture of the fellowship. It says that they broke bread together. We're talking about hospitality. This is a huge priority for us in 2023. Because gathering people at the table is such a primary expression of acceptance and of love and of community. That when somebody has sat at your table, there's a sense of intimacy, isn't there? You sat at my table. You came into my room. We had coffee together. We sat. We shared a meal. Something beautiful and intimate about that expression. And then they prayed. And when we talk about prayer, this may not be the picture of a prayer meeting that you have in your mind where people pray ecstatically or just kind of pray from the heart. Most uh, traditions pray prepared prayers or known prayers. They would have prayed the Lord's Prayer. They would have reenacted the Lord's Supper. They would have had a liturgy that they created around the pieces of Christianity that were floating around in the ether. They wouldn't have just known to come up with their own prayers because they had a rudimentary understanding of Jesus. They didn't have a common language or theology around Jesus. They wouldn't have known how to pray from the heart. A skill developed over time. They would have prayed known prayers, recitations of prayers by other saints and other prophets. You with me? There would have been a togetherness that they could have formed in this formulaic way. I prayed the other day with one of my 100-year-old patients who's suffering with a brain injury. And she couldn't have a lot of conversations. But when I asked if she wanted to pray, she said yes. And I asked her, is there a prayer that's particularly meaningful to you? And she said, the Lord's Prayer. And it was amazing, friends. She sat right up in her chair and she recited the Lord's Prayer perfectly after having stuttered in broken words for the last 45 minutes in the conversation because she had prayed that prayer her whole life. And it was rooted in her soul, not just in her mind. Right? So they bound themselves to one another in these prayers. And as a result, no surprise, deeds were done. Right? They gave to everybody as had need, as they had everything in common. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I go back to this value. Loving community is the context for mission. Loving community is the context for mission. And what this speaks to my heart is that loving community is not theoretical. It is practical. Deeply practical. There has to be 
a practice to what we believe. We're not just talking about Bible study. We're not just talking about prayer meetings. We're not just talking about worship. We're talking about coming together and using community as a context in the service of others for the sake of Jesus. That's mission. And the simplest expression of that mission for them was they gave to anyone as they had need. And we gloss right over that. And we go, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds like a beautiful expression of Christian community. I want you to stop just for a second and imagine a throng of thousands of Christians with a rudimentary understanding of the gospel of Jesus selling off their possessions to give to anyone as they had need. Every single day, this was happening. The attention to detail, the level of their responsiveness, the organization necessary, this predates internet, this predates, you know, computers, They just had to figure it out, friends. A radical responsiveness to the needs of others, and it drew people in as community was served. What might be the benefits of a community like this? We were just to sit with that for a second. What would it be like to live in a community where every need might be met? These might not be just material needs. These might be emotional needs, spiritual needs, coming alongside people when loss happens, when success happens, when grief happens, coming alongside people in every circumstance so that they will not experience whatever they are experiencing alone. There was a dynamic taking place where the foreigner comes and experiences something and then somebody from another culture that doesn't even speak their language who comes from a different socioeconomic class comes alongside of them and says I'm going to hold your hand through this and it does not matter what you know and what I know it does not matter what language we speak it does not matter whether I grew up rich and you grew up poor it doesn't matter if I'm a woman and you're a man we're going to cross every single boundary that our tribalism creates and we're going to meet each other in the space of our humanity and we're going to invite Jesus into that place and beautiful things are going to happen, friends. It's not rocket science. The barbarians figured this out, right? You and I can do it too. Here's the engine that drives this. Why? Why would they come together? What is causing them to meet each other in this place? Why did they do it? Verse 46 says this in the beginning of 47. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Praising God. Why did they do it? What was it in their rudimentary, basic understanding of Jesus that caused them to come together and cross every known boundary that existed before them? And the reality is this. Praising God was the engine. It's the power that made this thing go. 
Every single one of them received a life-altering, saving message of Jesus that prior to this, there was no message of hope that could compare. Every single one of them received a life-altering, life-changing message of Jesus in their lives. And they said, we've got to come together. We've got to do this, right? You've heard me say this before, but I, I deeply believe faith, our faith, wherever it is in your life or wherever you are, is an amalgam. It's an amalgam of the lives that have touched our lives and that we've touched. Our lives are somehow a combination of our human experiences that happen in the presence and power of Jesus, right? Every single prayer, every single study, every single word, every sermon, every situation where we have been impacted in our lives, right? Whether we're conscious of those experiences or not, we have integrated all of these experiences into the person that we are today for better or for worse, That amalgam is not only constructed of things that are our blessings, they're constructed of things that are painful. Our spiritual wounding is part of the amalgam. Are you with me? But we are an expression of every contact that we've made. And when we think about personal growth in community, I look back uh, at my own salvation. I was 17 years old. I happened to be on a mountaintop. Don't ask me why that's the case. Koreans just like their mountains. And I remember praying the prayer and raising my hand and receiving a blessing from a pastor. And I remember sitting down at a table surrounded by people that I did not know. And in my rudimentary understanding of my new Christianity, I knew one thing and one thing alone. I have got to go to church or everything that is happening in this moment will be lost. And I knew it. Because everything in my life up until that moment was running counter to the life of Christ that I was sensing God calling me to. And I told myself, I guess I'm a Christian now. And I turned to this other person. I said, where do you go to church? Because I need to go with you. And when I got to college, because I went to college in San Diego and I grew up, my Christianity grew and and blossomed as an early believer in South Korea. I had no other place to connect myself to. I remember going to orientation and I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to be confronted by tens of thousands of new people in this new place. And you know what my controlling thought was? I better go find a church. Because if I don't, I know exactly how I'm going to spend the next four years of my college career. And guess what God did? I went to an orientation dance and somebody introduced me to this crazy gal And she said, are you a Christian? Because I had an earring. It was the 90s. (laughs) And it was a cross. And she said, are you a Christian? And I said, yes. And she's like, you've got to come to church with me. And I said, thank you, God. And I attended that church all four years of my college career. It's where I met Angelina. And it's where I met so many of the folks that are sitting in this room today. Because community was necessary, absolutely essential 
And the person I am today is an amalgam of those experiences from the very beginning up until this very moment. So we gather in response to the God of the universe saying that he loves us, that he accepts us, that he cares for us. And we get the privilege of taking that same message and sharing it with other people and saying, God loves you. God accepts you. God receives you. I love you. I receive you. I accept you. We bring healing to one another, right? That's what I think it means, the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer that they likely prayed together. And so we ask this question, right? Who is God calling me to? Who is God calling you to in this season of your faith? And I challenge you with this thought. That community is your responsibility. Your experience of community is your responsibility. No one can create community for you apart from your willingness to ask for it, to devote yourself to it, and to invest who you are in it, however scary, challenging, or difficult that might feel. It is your responsibility. We could roast pigs every Sunday, and community would still be your responsibility. We could have a Bible study every day of the week. And community would still be your responsibility. We could pray seven, eight, nine times a week at all hours of the day. We could work around your schedule. We could work around your childcare. We could work around all of your responsibilities. And community would still be your responsibility. And so I challenge you with that, friends. Who is God calling you to? In this season, flip the narrative, make yourself responsible, challenge yourself to begin to imagine what that might look like and who that might look like, where that might look like, what that might look like. You and I, friends, were made for this. It is essential to us. It is a critical part of what it means to live in Christ. And it is absolutely fundamental to how you will grow and to the person that you are becoming as a follower of his. Let's pray together.